Guys, we're on episode 10. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. Me neither. Like, boom. Well, congratulations to everyone, to us, to our listeners. Thanks for sticking it out. I mean, that's, (laughs) I think that's the most remarkable part is that we actually have people coming back week after week to, uh, to listen to us talk about things, which is... And very nice people too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very nice people leaving us kind reviews. Yeah. Made Alvaro blush at least three times. I think we have some of the most good looking fans all, all over the internet. Yeah. Really. We totally know what they look like and you're right. Yeah. It's probably safe to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you're, if you're listening to these, kudos to you. Yes. You look great. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, also cool on the sort of meta front, we found out, I got an email that um, we are part of the initial rollout of Google Play podcast. So if you are an Android user or just a, a fan of Google's ecosystem in general, um, once you start seeing the podcast section in your Google Play music app, um, we will be available for subscribing and listening right from there. So that's convenient. It's neat. Um, I don't know exactly what their rollout schedule is, but I know that it's one of those staggered things. So if you you don't see it immediately just check back um maybe by the time you hear this it'll be entirely rolled out so who knows but either way that's exciting so if you have been waiting for that option um you can now subscribe there which uh, we would love it if you did so yeah yeah it's awesome I'm, I'm really excited about this yeah go google yeah go google i think it's a nice um move for them to actually have it integrated into their main music app uh which is something that i think that's one I, it kind of bothers me a little bit about apple music because uh, I understand why they've got a separate app, but I kind of like the idea of all my listening happening in one spot. Um, yeah, that's smart. Then again, I use Overcast anyway, so <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> because it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, anyway, we've got some uh, some quick follow up and some news that we wanted to react to. I think over the past week. So, Alvaro, did you hear that the eighty five millimeter GM lens is apparently like it scratches itself or something? Is that what you we were, we were talking about? This? Yeah. Yeah, that was actually one of the most surprising things I've read all week, that people apparently are complaining a lot about the new 85mm Sony lens, the 1.4 G Master, which I just like to call GM for short. Uh, and and it, apparently when you try to focus with it, it makes this uh, whirring or scratching sound as if the mechanism inside the lens isn't uh, properly lubricated and it's, uh, you know, probably maybe even damaging the lens. So people are rightly uh, concerned about this. I mean, if I were to spend almost $2,000 on a lens and I'm noticing weird stuff going on, I'm definitely going to be worried about it. Somebody tore it down though, right? Like I, I, I thought I read somewhere that they opened it up and they said that it was lubricant instead of actual scratches that you're seeing. Um, but either way, like there's obviously issues here. Yeah, apparently it's normal, but uh, but... It, they they don't go as far as to say that Sony won't try to remedy it in some in some way by changing or tweaking the manufacturing process at least. So apparently it's just something that you can expect from these early uh, early versions of the lens that you know every company learns to manufacture uh, products at scale as they do it, basically, as they go along. So it takes a while to fine-tune the process and work out the kinks. And apparently that's what we're seeing right now. The good news is your lens, if it's exhibiting some of this behavior, uh, it's okay. It's not going to damage the lens, apparently, so you don't have to be too worried about it. 
But yeah, it's something that I would expect Sony to solve uh, in a few months once they once they get their final production line in place. It's like it's like take two of the Zeiss 85 millimeter delays, so to say. All of a sudden, it was announced, and it's going to take a year to get a working lens in your hand. But, but to Zeiss's credit, they refused to ship the lens until they could absolutely guarantee that the lens was perfect. So that's, I believe, uh, important to to point out. I mean, Zeiss has had a huge number of problems in getting the baddies lenses out in volume to their customers. But maybe it's because they ran into some of these issues and they just refused to ship until they got it right. Right. And I think, in my mind, that's a better way to go. Uh, I mean, if I had bought a GM lens and I'm and I was seeing these weird noises, I wouldn't be too happy about it. Yeah, I think I'd be more mad if if I bought a lens and it didn't work than if I just didn't have the lens. Period. Yeah, me too. So speaking of Zeiss, they have another baddest lens. Hey, just as soon as they catch up with production on the 25mm and the 85mm, bam, we got an 18mm lens. Yeah, I think they've never heard the saying that, you know, that don't bite more than you can chew. (laughs) I don't think they've ever heard that, but that's okay. I I wonder what the delays will be on this one. Yeah, me too, me too. But I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that's true. It looks looks like a really impressive lens. Um, An 18mm f2.8 wide-angle prime from... Zeiss for the Sony full-frame E-mount system. So, um, I mean, it looks pretty sweet. So, I believe Marius, I believe Marius wins our bet in the end, oh. doesn't he? Yep. I think I was off by a couple of millimeters because I was uh, expecting like a sixteen, slightly wider. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I win my bet. Woohoo! Hey, but Battis doesn't count as Sony. Oh, you are right. Oh yes, <laughs> sore loser over here. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys excited about this one though? Because I know that among the three of us, I seem to be the only one who actually likes wide-angle primes. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I'm not particularly excited about it. It looks really cool. Like I think, like the way it tapers away from the body or like the main part of the lens. I think it looks kind of neat. It looks like the sample photos are pretty nice, but. But man, you got to learn how to shoot a wide angle in order to use one of those. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, to me, it's just not very, not very. It's not the type of photography that I run into every day. So I, it would be more of a, if I were away on a trip on an exotic city that I want to take landscape pictures of, mm-hmm. I could see myself using that. But it's not one lens that I would uh, own or I would want to own. I think. So it's that's why I'm not really that excited about it. Yeah. Are there any reviews out there yet? Uh, I don't think so. I, at least I haven't seen any in-depth reviews. I mean, you you can see those uh, first impressions posts or something like that, but yeah, expensive, hey? Yeah, but wide angles tend to be more expensive than yeah. They're more complicated to make, right? I, I think a few people have told me that before. Yeah, and especially the E-mount is apparently very tricky to get a wide angle lens right for the E-mount, especially the full frame E-mount. Because of the short flange distance, you have uh, less room to play with the uh, angle the light is supposed to hit the sensor at. So Interesting. It, it's a technical achievement, and sizes are definitely bragging about it, <laughs> that they've managed to hit to make a lens that is sharp corner to corner despite being such a wide angle, and that's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the reviews, definitely. Me too. How about in the Fuji front there, Marius? What, uh, there was some news out there this week about the Fuji X-Pro2. Yes, there was. Um, 
right on the heels of the episode where we were talking about DSLR versus mirrorless and I was saying, oh, I'm not sure I trust my mirrorless system in cold conditions. Well, lo and behold, Fuji publishes a video where a photographer by the name of Gianluca Cola took his uh, X-Pro2 kit into Antarctica. Um, and uh, the, the video basically shows off shooting in Antarctica and he's dropping it in the snow. And so long story short, I guess I had nothing to worry about. Apparently my new camera system will survive the coldest places on earth. So I, th I think Antarctica qualifies as cold enough, right? I think so. That's probably about as cold as I would ever um, want to experience. So if, if it can survive Antarctica, you know what? I'm, I'm happy. I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's about as, uh, as good as it gets. Yeah. Let's not get picky about it. Yeah. So I was happy about that. Um, so I stand corrected. Mirrorless systems are totally, totally viable in harsh conditions, or at least this particular one is. So there you go. Right. The link for that video is in the show notes. And it, there's some pretty impressive photos in there um, just to pump the Fuji part as well. I some really nice photos. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's a talented man. Um, also on the DSLR front, um, we've started to see a trickle of uh, Nikon D5 reviews coming out. Um, and this is, of course, their their monstrous giant flagship that competes directly with Canon's 1DX Mark II. These are kind of the uh, quintessential sports and action DSLRs. Um, and of course, none of us have shot. I don't think we've, we've shot with any of these series of cameras. But uh, what, what do you guys think now that we're starting to see reviews of this generation? I think it's a tricky proposition in terms of value. I don't see many people uh, being able to justify $6,500 for a camera like that that doesn't push the resolution factor. It doesn't push... Well, it does have the fastest burst rate, which for some people is definitely important. But uh, other than that, uh, I wouldn't say that it is uh, like groundbreaking in any way. And that's something that kind of bothers me about it. I mean, I expected more from Nikon, really, to be honest. And the performance seems right in line with with this. I mean, people are disappointed with the performance of the sensor, especially in, in good lighting conditions, which is where you, you would expect it to shine. Uh, and on the other hand, funnily enough, it performs really well or surprisingly well in low light. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure uh, what kind of photographer would be best served by this camera. You know, I was. Uh, I think I was looking at the digital Rev TV first look, the impressions where where Locke goes around and just holds down the shutter button, and it's. You guys watch that video at all? We'll put it in the show notes. I thought it was funny. I, I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really funny. But anyway, uh, in there, I think they showed off. Um, you know how that you have that little. Um, joystick thing on the X-Pro2, Marius, where you can choose the, right, it's on the X-Pro2. Yep. A lot of Canon cameras yep. have that for like choosing a focus point. Well, they have like a second one so that when you turn the camera into portrait, um, they have a second joystick on the bottom. Yep. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, I that was really, very nice. I really, really missed that on my, with the Sony a7 II and then the grip. Um, I really, really would love to have like a, a focus point selection tool. Right, because that's to select your focus point when you're shooting right. in portrait mode. Yeah, it's 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 a small little addition, but I th I from a usability standpoint, it looks brilliant. Yeah, but that's something that they could like solve very easily by updating the grip. Not 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 even not they wouldn't even need to update the camera. Right. So yeah. it's easily the biggest drawback of the A7 II grip. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's this is a strange kind of camera to judge, I think, because it's a very narrow audience. Um, 
compared to the people who are buying, you know, the, the D eight tens and things like that. Cause those are more versatile cameras, I think. And if you're after resolution, then there's obviously better choices, especially in that price range. But ultimately where the one DX Mark two and the Nikon D five are pushing the envelope is in terms of, um, acceptable resolutions with incredible burst rates and incredible autofocus accuracy and tracking at those burst, burst rates. And I think that is something that is a lot more complicated than we give it credit for. So the fact that they're able to get those kinds of, you know, 16 frames per second, you know, full frame sensor, I forget the exact megapixel count, but either way, it's, it's not 21, 21. Wow. That's low. Yeah. It's not an insignificant achievement to be able to do that. Right. That was really not impressive, but it, when you take it into context, like like you said, Marius, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. to be able to capture and write to the card 16 pictures of 21 uh, megapixels each, which in terms of raw file, it could very well be over 50 megabytes. Exactly. Uh, yeah. to, to, to be able to capture that uh, 16 of that every second, that, yeah, that's not insignificant. So maybe we're being very strict maybe we're being unfair in the way that we expect them to be like i don't know 50 megapixels with the same burst rate and that's just not reasonable that's just not realistic yeah i mean i think th i think that's what that's what it comes down to is you just have to be aware of what you're expecting and what the camera is optimized for and these ones are really like they're very very focused cameras the d810s you can make an argument that they're usable in almost any scenario and you know canon's 5d series but these guys are just hyper-specialized, and I think there's a smaller audience for them. But on the other hand, the kinds of people who are using them, I mean, they're going to make back, they'll be able to justify the cost in like one good shoot yeah, probably. kind of thing. Like we're, we're talking high budget right, um, for sure. productions here. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned about the price. It's obviously something that um, is not really on my radar, certainly, but it's that's got more to do with... Um, just again, the, the shooting envelope of, of those cameras rather than anything um, else. One funny point uh, just before we move on, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the the battery life is actually significantly better on the D5 than it is on the 1DX Mark II. I think it's rated for over 3,000 shots per battery. Wow. Um, wow. Which is hilarious, right? I mean, it, back when, you know, we, we did this mirrorless versus DSLR episode, and we were talking about mirrorless topping out at about 350 shots per battery. <laughs> Meanwhile, <Yeah. laughs> you know, there's this, this incredible like 3000. Well, with such a huge body, you can have a pretty big battery. So it kind of makes sense. Of course. And it is a massive body. I mean, these are, yeah. these are built like actual tanks. They're very heavy. They're also very comfortable to hold. I think that's worth mentioning is because the grips are so big, you're, especially if you're like me and you've got you know larger hands it it just feels a little less cramped than a lot of the mirrorless grips right. so that's that's a point in their favor as long as you're willing to put up with the weight of the system overall and they're also one of the one of the safest cameras to own because if you're just on a random street and a thief tries to steal it from you you could just hit him on the head with it <laughs> and, and the camera will be fine so yeah oh yeah yeah that's an investment you know worth it right there absolutely yeah yeah, no, that's... Weapon and camera all in one. Exactly. And paperweight, too. <laughs> there you go. Three in one. <laughs> uh, last but not least, apparently, my good friend Marius has another new toy in the last week, like money bags. Yeah, okay, so just to clarify, <laughs> my... Um, 
it's not quite a money bag situation. So the X-Pro2 I bought myself um, with my own money, and that's fine. Um, this other toy that Josh is referring to is a drone. Uh, it is a Phantom 4. Um, it is my favorite thing in the world right now. <laughs> and uh, uh, technically, I didn't buy it. The agency bought it. Um, but we kind of bought it for me because I'm the one who's going to be flying it and getting all the licensing and everything like that. So effectively, yes, it is just me spending a bunch of money on toys <laughs> this month. But <laughs> this particular one is is lots of fun. I um, I was up all weekend um, up north here in Ontario doing a shoot for a client, and uh, we initially it was supposed to be like a photography thing, but um, the lake that I was supposed to be shooting was still frozen solid, which we were not anticipating. So it ended up being very little photography and a whole lot of me playing around with the drone and clocking in <laughs> flight hours Sweet. and things like that. And uh, yeah, I got to say we we should talk about drones, but as a preliminary impression the phantom 4 is a seriously impressive piece of kit i was amazed at how good the footage looks just straight out of the uh straight out of the camera and uh it's very fun to fly it's very safe um if you turn on the the sport mode it's very very agile uh it's a little scary to fly actually but it's <laughs> it's fun um so yeah how is it to pack is it like I mean, it would would it be realistic to take it with you on a trip. I think it could be. It depends on the it depends on the trip. So it comes with this sort of reinforced styrofoam carrying case thing. It's a little difficult to describe. It's basically like a little briefcase made of uh, styrofoam that that it all fits into very nicely. It's not very heavy. It's not very bulky. Um, there are also a number of companies that make like specific travel bags for carrying your phantom drone uh think tank actually makes some nice. um and it's like a backpack style thing where it just everything fits in there and it's a, it's a backpack and you're you're good to go so i think it's it can be practical to take it with you i think i i'm it's something that i'd have to look into in terms of um do you get into trouble with uh airport security like how does it work for checking it versus not because it's uh, it's small enough that you wouldn't have to based on size but i imagine just because it's a right you know they probably don't want you to fly a drone while they're flying their plane <laughs> um <laughs> but also i wouldn't feel safe checking it in i mean well that's the, the thing is i'd want the bag. A very expensive piece of kit right? yeah i'd want the bag that i'm putting it in to be very well padded if it's going in to, if it's going to be checked in so again I, i'm i have no real answer there but i would certainly like to take it on trips because i think that it is an extremely um i mean i, I can't tell you guys how uh liberating it is to be able to just shoot from a totally new perspective i mean it's something that no lens can get you right because it's a matter of altitude rather than zoom or or anything like that so it's it's a whole new world for me i'm very excited um and hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about drones in another episode sweet. yeah definitely sweet okay so on to the main topic of this episode uh we're going to talk this week about a very important very tricky uh, issue that all photographers sooner or later are going to face which is photo editing uh how much is it okay to edit a, a picture uh, is it okay to edit at all and uh, what particular techniques and tricks each of one uses. And uh, we, we would also like to hear about you guys. So after you listen to this episode, if you have some tips that you would like to share with us and with the rest of the audience, please uh, tweet at us at candid underscore FM. And we promise to uh, share them as best we can and uh, speak about it on, on next episode. So let's get into it. All right. So editing, um, I think we might want to draw a line in the sand between, um, something like 
adding filters to an image and editing in the sense that we're going to talk about, and then also photo manipulation, which to my mind is a totally separate entity. What do you guys mean exactly about photo manipulation? So my, my thinking, like when I say photo manipulation, I'm, I'm thinking of those situations where you're actually um, changing elements of the image in order to achieve some sort of artistic thing, or you're just like removing wires or either way, you are actually changing the content of the images, not just the look. Right. Like, like editing a, a model onto a different background or something like that, right? Exactly, exactly. So anything that Which falls, is a very common practice, by the way. Yeah, so anything that falls into that category to me counts as photo manipulation, um, which I think is is worth separating because um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the ethics of editing your photos, and, and I think that's where it becomes um, easier to discuss because certain types of editing, I think, are more acceptable in more cases than others. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I think that's just worth mentioning is that we we are aware of these different categories of editing, if you will. Yeah, that's fair. So we're going to create the candid code of conduct when it comes to editing. <laughs> oh, man. <Sure. laughs> I didn't know I was signing up for this. <laughs> so um, here's a here's an easy question to start us off. I mean, do it's a good thing we're not recording this, right? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Um, do you guys edit your photos a lot when, when you've taken a shot? I mean, are you the kind of photographer that's going to pull the images off the card and basically share them as is, or do you find yourselves doing a lot of editing before you're willing to share them with the world? Well, who, who's going to take over this one? You know what? Start on a good foot, Alvaro. Have a fire away. <laughs> Cause I think like <laughs> where I come from is like, I think there's a stigma almost. I don't, I feel like there's a stigma when if I was to say, yeah, I edit my photos, I edit them a lot. Like, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. I don't think no, no, I don't think so. But you're answering the question, so you may as well. Oh, okay. Well, there. I, now I'm starting on. So I edit my photos. Yeah, I pop them in and I like to change the white balance all over the place. And I change the, I you know kill highlights and bring up the shadows. And uh, I, I even like changing, like really bringing out specific colors and killing other colors. I just, I'm constantly manipulating, not manipulating, apparently, sorry. I'm constantly <laughs> editing the photo. Uh, I'll go back after a year and change it all again. And, but like, I guess where I'm coming from is I, I feel like there's this, um, you know, the more pure the photo, the better it is. Um, and I, so I'm on the other end of the, that stick. None of my photos are ever good coming out of the camera. And I just try to change them as much as possible until I think that they look acceptable. Yeah, I see that a lot. And, and I don't really agree with the sentiment that editing is, isn't fair. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think I fall somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle on this. Because, for example, the, the one, one end of the question is the person who doesn't edit at all. That's probably someone who shoots JPEG and shares the pictures right out of camera. I'm not like that. I, I never shoot JPEG. I, I've said it before here. I always shoot raw and I always uh, feel like I need to, at the very least, do some basic adjustments on the raw file before I feel uh, ready to share it because that's just uh, the way the way the camera is designed. I mean, a raw file isn't finished. Is It's supposed to capture as much image data as possible, but it's then up to you, the photographer, to sort of give it the final look that you want. That's why you shoot raw, after all, right? So I, I find myself 
somewhere in the middle. I don't like to edit too much either. I don't like to... I mean, I've done it every now and then because sometimes it's just necessary. But if I can avoid it, I prefer to just not do it too much. But I think there's a difference between uh, some some types of edits and, and, and others. For example, in my mind, uh, fixing something that you didn't get right in camera, I think that's fair game. I think that's just taking advantage of what digital technology does for you. For example, you mentioned before, Josh, uh, that you changed the white balance. Well, if you didn't get the right white balance in camera, that's just... Right, sure. That there's no penalty for doing that in, in, in editing later because that's just something that you need to do. I mean, the, for the picture to look right, you it has to have the proper white balance. So I do that all the time. I basically almost never use the native white balance that my camera puts out I, I almost always tweak it even if only slightly because I find I find sometimes Sony cameras have a tendency to put too much green on the pictures I don't know if you've noticed this but it's something that I don't really like it's a little cooler right a lot of the images I find they're cool like I always need to boost the the yellows in the the photo I find but anyway I I just tend to boost the reds uh, as opposed to the greens the, the with the blue and yellow I don't have that much that much problems but that that that, that many problems but yeah it, it's possible I mean that's just also a, a matter of taste right I mean we each edit the way we feel comfortable with and that's okay right, right, right. but uh, there's a difference between those types of edits and then the, the the ones where you are just going into the detail and just uh, cheating almost in a way right and that's a, a very difficult line to to paint and it's really it's right it's hard to draw that line in the sand exactly and as far as filters go uh, for example the visco filters i don't consider them cheating i think that's uh, i mean as long as you apply a general uh, setting to the entire picture i think that's fair you can just uh, change the tone curve. You can change the the shadows, the highlights. You can tweak all of that. That's fine. Once you start editing, you know, localized, doing localized edits on some areas of the image, that's where it starts getting a little bit more tricky for me. Marius, how about you? I, I think for me, editing is, um, it's kind of about trying to, bring the image that I shot out of the camera into um, a place where I think it accurately reflects the way that I want that scene to be remembered. Um, and, and this is so generally speaking, I try and do as little editing as possible. And that's, I think, for two reasons. One of them, um, I like to challenge myself to get the shot as close to perfect as I can right from the camera, because I think that's just a matter of good technique. And if you um, if you know your technical chops, then effectively you should be able to get a good exposure out of your camera just almost in any scenario, you know, barring like HDR setups and things like that. But um, in terms of just a, a standard shot, I think if I can get it as close to perfect out of the camera as possible, that's great. It saves me time down the road because I don't have to do as much editing. Um, but when I do actually bring it into any app to, to do edits, it's generally one of two things. I, I either want to um, make adjustments, again, like you guys were saying, just kind of global tweaks to fix white balance um, that was metered incorrectly or to uh, just adjust exposure one way or the other or to save some highlights that I accidentally clipped or deliberately clipped. Um, 
So things like that to me are, are fine. And, and ultimately, I think um, this is a, a difficult subject because a lot of it is subjective. Uh, but I don't subscribe to the notion that editing is cheating by, by any stretch of the imagination. I think that um, my goal is always, again, to try and to try and make the image into the way that I saw it in my head when I captured it or the way that I wanted it to look. Um, because photography is art, and so there's a certain element of interpretation um, just inherent in it. Right. And as artists... Um, it is our responsibility to try and, um, I mean, this is why we have different photographers, right? This is why each photographer's um, visual style is unique. It's it, it contributes to why we like their work so much. It's not just the subject matter that they're capturing. It's how they capture. It's how they portray those things. And a lot of that does come down to the edit. And, um, you know, last week we were talking about inspiration and um, Josh was bringing up the, uh, the Serial magazine um, and... To me, there's a very clear, um, I think, aesthetic language that a lot of those photographers use, and it ties their style together, which makes a lot of sense for a magazine. It's also, I would consider it to be a very popular look these days. Yeah. Um, and so you'll, you'll often find a lot of photographers trying to emulate that look in their own photography, which is something that I typically try and stay away from because I believe that, um, like any other trend, it is to some degree fleeting. So someday those processing styles will no longer be in vogue. And then I kind of want my images to outlast changes in style. And I know that sounds kind of grandiose because, you know, we're not generally, we're not taking like amazing images day to day, but just as a, as a mentality, I like to, um, I like to edit my photos in such a way as to make them accurate and neutral right um, unless I'm deliberately trying to go for a quote unquote look which again is where the filters come in and it's it's worth mentioning that of course filters are, are really just a, a collection of edits to exposure to color temperatures to curves to things like that they're just bundled into a single process to make it like a, a one-click deal um, so from my perspective I do I do like to edit my images if I can get away with not editing them, that's fine. Um, but ultimately, it's it's about accuracy and um, and and just actually communicating what I intend to communicate with the image. Right. I have a couple questions. Uh, let me let me try to uh, articulate them as best as I can. Uh, you said that you try to do as as little editing as you can and try to get in camera the the the, the image uh, as closest to to what you want to. Be what you want it to be in camera as possible. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, do you think the the design of the raw format kind of flies in the face of that a little bit, of that philosophy? Yes. That's that's one question. And the other one is, uh, you were also saying that you try to uh, get your images to be um, independent from any aesthetic uh, fashion or ten or tendencies. And I agree with that. I, I share that sentiment to a degree. But there's also something to be said about the uh, periods we work in and the periods we live in. I mean, if we make the analogy to painting, for example, uh, and you compare it to uh, artists that have become famous and historic all over the centuries and the years, there's a very clear way that you can classify their work by period. So you see the period, for example, if you take Picasso, you, you can see his blue period. Yep. And then you can see different periods all 
throughout his career. And I think there's value in that too. So I don't think there's that trying to stay away from the what is considered in fashion or trendy in uh, at a given time i don't consciously try to stay away from that or to reject that because that's just something that is the reality we we live in and i'm conflicted because on one hand i don't want to fall prey to that whole you know you're just uh, following along uh, the, the conventional look that everybody's expecting, and that's not very uh, very appealing as an artist. But on the other hand, there's also something, when you, when you kind of zoom out a little bit, it kind of makes sense. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a difficult thing to balance for me personally. Yeah. So let me, let me answer those questions backwards because I think the, they're both excellent. Um, but the second one, uh, I just, I want to point out that I'm not, um, I, I don't intend to reject styles. It's not really about that. I think what you were talking about as far as, um, artists having a period of time where they, you know, they, they follow certain stylistic trends and things like that. All of that makes perfect sense. And I'm, I mean, anyone who looks at my work will see that I do follow some of these trends to a degree. I think probably what's more accurate to say is that I, I do my best to remain conscious of my own right. aesthetic within these styles. So I don't want to have my work be lost in the vast, uh, you know, the, the masses as it were, just because I want to participate in this stylistic movement. So I do, I do want to participate. I do think that it's cool. I do think that there's a lot of interesting stylistic ground being uh, explored these days. And and I do want to explore it as well. But again, it's always about balancing that participation with an adherence to what I consider to be my own style, which of course develops over time and so on and so forth. But that, I think that's my big concern is just not to get lost in the flood. Right. That's an excellent point. And the the answer to your first question about um, the, the raw format, I think you're absolutely right. Yes. Just by its nature, it kind of foils any attempt at um, at capturing a certain look straight out of the camera because you, you in effect, are capturing all possible looks. Um, and that's why I tend to shoot raw, versus J, uh, raw and JPEG. Um, and of course, on, on Fuji cameras, the JPEG engine uh, is is renowned for having you know very pleasing color science in general, and of course you can also tweak a lot of the settings uh, right in the camera um, as far as the the built-in raw conversion engine. Right. And so doing that, I'm I'm kind of like setting myself up for good JPEGs because they're they adhere to the way that I want them to look, and I might just do a little bit of tweaking after the fact, but yeah, I, I think. I think that's why I shoot both because to me the the JPEG is my attempt at getting it right in the camera and of course very often I look at it and I go well no I didn't <laughs> right you know because we're not perfect and and some situations are just difficult so I say okay well crap I guess that one didn't work and then I flip over to the raw and I and I work on that and it's good I think this is you know we were talking about the storage being cheap these days so it's worth shooting raw always but if you also like um like I do, the the immediacy of a JPEG, um, you know, there's I think there's merit to that as well, and it does force me to be very, um, again, to to me, it's it's partly a challenge for myself because I want to improve my technique, and I find that if I have that, uh, even if it's an imaginary limitation of okay, the JPEG is all I get, um, it just forces me to be more conscious of my shooting technique and get better exposures right from the camera whenever I can. 
Right, I absolutely agree with that. And by the way, is there an option in Fuji cameras to have all of the JPEG profiles used when you're shooting, or you have to pick one and only one? Well, you can do um, film simulation bracketing when you're shooting, which does basically what you've described. But I think the more practical way to work is actually to, again, shoot RAW plus JPEG. And then if you decide that you want to see a different film simulation, um, you can actually just go to the RAW file in the camera and reprocess it using whatever film simulation you want and save it as a JPEG. So it's it's pretty flexible, actually. The, the built-in... Um, engine for that is very capable and it allows you to tweak color and sharpness and things like that um, before you finalize it. So it's pretty great. And and I do find myself occasionally doing that, especially when I want to see something in one of the color simulations and then also in uh, one of the black and white looks, um, which is pretty common. Um, and I just, I don't know, for, for me, I'd, I'd rather not do bracketing. I'd rather just shoot it, you know, with one film simulation. And then if I'm curious, I'll just manually recreate the jpeg with the other one right okay we're gonna make this candid code of conduct official let's do it okay um <laughs> i'm kind of excited over here <laughs> yeah well it's it's this is this is i think the most controversial part of this so we we basically want to try and talk a little bit about the ethics of editing because we've we've kind of mentioned how there are differing philosophies on whether or not editing photos uh in any respect is allowed or kosher or whatever you want to call it um, and, I, and I think there's uh, there's a lot to discuss here because you you can have um, there, there's like competing ideas and it's also a matter of again context because I can think of specific shooting scenarios like news reporting where any kind of manipulation can be seen as um, manipulative right definitely. Um, or in right. some cases uh, deceptive and obviously that is not acceptable in those in those shooting conditions and so of course I, I agree with the people that that um, make that argument. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that that same level of um, anti-editing sentiment is applicable to just general shooting. Like why, you know, is it is it as important that me as a casual shooter or even as like as a professional shooter delivering client work, um, it, like it, ethically, I don't think there's the same um, boundary around those two. Right. And even in that uh, journalism context that you mentioned, it's not as clear-cut as it seems. I mean, there's a very, very uh, primary choice, which is to show a picture in color or, or black and white. And that is, to some extent, editing, and that can change the mood of a scene completely. Yeah. And for some reason, that's not frowned upon when you're in a journalistic context. You You can see a picture from any kind of, uh, you know, newsworthy scene and you see them in black and white just as often or even more as you see them in color and people don't seem to have a problem with that. And I think that's underestimating the, the influence that color has on the, you know, the emotional response that a picture gets from people. It's true. So I, I think it's like a very, very, uh, inconsistent standard of, uh, you know, judging these things. One other thing um, when it comes to editing that I think is uh, is probably encountered more frequently than, than anything else is something like uh, retouching skin when you're doing portraiture. And this is where um, right. a lot of times, like in the typical magazine fashion style of photography, um, there's, there's controversy when 
um, the photographer has, you know, very heavily edited the look of uh, a model's skin and or body shape. And this is where I, you know, to me, this is, again, uh, a step too far. And this is why uh, earlier I made the distinction between photo editing in terms of just basic, uh, you know, image parameters and photo manipulation where you're actually substantively changing the contents of right. an image. And to, to me, that's the, that's the gray area. And I think that in general, um, you've got to be very clear about your intentions when you're going to make a change like that. And I don't know that I agree with it in, um, in portraiture. I don't think that, 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 that it's, um, ethically very right to do that. I like to think that when you're trying to capture a portrait of someone, um, you're trying to do so honestly, but on the other hand, um, obviously, if you're if you've got portraiture clients, they're going to want a little bit of retouching of skin and things like that to get rid of blemishes and so on and so forth. And honestly, I think that's fine because it's not really a a meaningful change. It's just a, a slight um, a slight alteration to make it more flattering, which in many cases is the goal of that image, right? Um, so uh, to me, that's fine. But yeah, once you start changing like body shapes and removing elements from photos and things like that, it's just, I'm a little less okay with that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the line is very, is exactly where you where you said it. I mean, it's one thing is to, to uh, like, like you said, remove a spot from the skin or something like that. Or if the model that day has a, uh, you know, has a, some some imperfection on the skin because it happens, you know, from day to day. Yeah, uh, that's that's okay. I, I I'm okay with that. But once you start uh, altering the body shape of a person, a perfectly healthy person, just for the sake of conforming to an unrealistic canon of beauty or standard of beauty, I'm not a, no, I'm not okay with that at all. Yeah. So that's that's a line that's. It is very complicated because, like you said, the client uh, usually has a very, very well-defined idea of what they want, and uh, sometimes the photographer can be caught like in the, like between a rock and a hard place because you can remain faithful to your ethics code, or you can get paid. Tell the client, "I'm not going to do this," yeah. right, and that can result in you losing the job, and that's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing to do and um, the noble thing is very easy to to state here when we're talking about it but yeah once you once you have to live through it it's not as easy definitely yeah the only other thing um i will say about my own photo manipulation um the i think the the one thing i find myself doing in this realm is removing wires from certain landscape shots i think that's that's one thing oh. where yeah. I, I, you know, it's, I agree. I, yes, technically it's not an accurate depiction of that scene because there was a wire running across it, but honestly, that's not really, right. to me, that doesn't count as an ethical violation. It's just like, w would you rather see the thing with the wire in it? Probably not. So <laughs> I'm going to get rid of it. <laughs> I was going to ask this direct question because I thought, oh, I've definitely cheated then a thousand times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. I not, to me, again, this is, this is a sort of harmless edit, removing a wire or something like that. When you start removing, again, other elements that are actually contributing factors in the conversation position then it's a little fuzzier but yeah it's well to me as a general rule the ethics come into it whenever there are people involved in the pictures right because if you're taking a picture of a landscape yeah you can sort of uh, if there's a random person walking on the horizon you can just remove them you know with a clone tool and that's that 
and that that's okay. But yeah, I mean, once you start retouching portraits, that's a uh, very like a morally gray area. You you said it before, and I I couldn't have said it better myself. But for landscape pictures, I mean, I suppose there are exceptions if you're just if you're taking pictures of a uh, a hotel or something like that, and you're trying to make it appealing to to the public, and you just remove uh, things that you don't like about it. <laughs> yeah. That's not very ethical. Yeah. Too, but, but those are, you know, minority cases, I would say. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, it sounds like we're actually very close to the same, um, in terms of our opinion on, on the ethics here. I don't know, Josh, are you, are you finding yourself nodding or are you crying over there at what Oliver and I are saying? <laughs> <laughs> I, some, I think I'll be tarred and feathered if I say that I'm crying. No, I, I, I think I agree. Um, I don't shoot enough photos of people to ever run into the scenario. So, um, when I shoot a product, I try to be honest with it, but I also want it to look good. So yeah, I don't know. I, I don't run into the issues at all, or at, at least as often when you shoot a product as, as you would with a, with an actual living human human being. But there's a lot of cheating in product photography too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. There's a lot of photo manipulation in product photography. Like, right. Um, but I don't, I just, Yeah. Um, I, I'm more talking about like just styling a, a product photo as opposed to manipulating it. Um, anyway, yeah, I don't run it in, into it as much on my end of things. I don't, what do you guys, do you guys feel like any photos I've ever shot like are manipulative? I don't think so. I, I can't think of any. No. I mean, I'm really putting you on the spot. And if you did say so, then, whoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I remember, uh, Last year, I did a photography course, and um, uh, the first edit, the f the first uh, lesson was product photography, and uh, we were shown what it takes to take a really good uh, product picture in camera, and it is crazy. I mean, it, it was a picture of a glass of beer, you know, the way we like it in Spain with a uh, with a layer of very thick foam on top. Mm, I don't. Okay. I, I know that many people will be cringing right now, but that's how we like <laughs> it. Deal with it, and and you know, uh, to to get the appealing effect of you know the the glass with the little drops of uh, condensation to make it look like it's really cold, and then the foam, and then the 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 edges of the glass. It was against a white background, so to to make the edges of the glass really stand out. It they they applied like black tape. Oh wow! On on the back of the glass, and then they had like seven lights, and the the droplets of water were just sprayed on the glass. It's not like it was cold at all, and and it was like completely fake. But it it required so much work to set up the shot that sometimes I do think, is it really worth it to do all of that just so that you can get the the image right in camera? And then you have to do uh, fewer edits afterwards. But if you can get the same effect just by taking a normal picture and doing more edits, uh, you know, afterwards, what's the difference? It's both are cheating as far as I'm concerned. So why is one frowned upon and the other one is perfectly fine? I don't, I don't share that notion myself. But most people seem to think, seem to feel that way. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a difficult one. I, I think. Personally, I would I would 
again, vote for doing it in camera because while they're still cheating in the sense that they're portraying that particular object unrealistically, um, trying to fake it in post inevitably will give you less convincing results than going as far as you can uh, in the real world and then just augmenting it digitally. Um, so that would be that would be my. But yeah, but you're making a call based on the end result. Right, purely on the end result. If I showed you two pictures and they were exactly the same, and I told you one was uh, achieved entirely in camera and the other one was achieved with post processing, but you couldn't physically tell them apart, would you have a problem with that? Oh no, 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 no. That's fine then. I, it's it's for me. It's again um, ethically, I don't really have a problem with that particular kind of manipulation, and it's partly because the, the nature of product photography is such that you have to. You have to present an aspirational view of the product, I think, in, in a lot of cases, especially right. when you're trying to sell it. I mean, if you're trying to, you know, for, for us, where we're reviewing something, we have slightly different um, slightly different goals than the people who are actually trying to sell you the product initially. And um, fr from their perspective, I understand why you would want to make it look, you know, as as amazing and appealing as possible, whether or not that's actually the way that people will consume or or encounter it in the real world. Um, so again, commercial photography versus reportage, blah, blah, blah. But it's, uh, yeah, For I, I actually encountered something similar, um, and it, I was reminded of it recently because someone complained. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but some time ago I did a review, uh, sort of a comparison between Kindle and Kobo e-readers. And um, I did my best to, you know, wipe the fingerprints and things like that off of them before doing the product shots. Right. Um, but I didn't go so far as to, I didn't go so far as to digitally remove what was left after the fact. And so people, I got uh, someone complaining that it was like, oh, well, why didn't you get, you know, fingerprints off the da da da? And I was like, well, because that's what they look like. You know, I mean, it's, it's an object that you use and in using it, you will leave fingerprints on it. And yes, you'll wipe them off, but this is what it looks like after being wiped off. So I can either lie to you that it will, you know, always look pristine, or I can just show it to you the way that it's most likely to look in your actual home, uh, which is what I opted to do. But again, it's, I think there's an expectation of a certain degree of perfection in product photography. And when you deviate from that, it's, it's just unfamiliar to people because they're not used to looking at images of products and seeing those kinds of imperfections. Right, but that's a very interesting question, and uh, it's one I encounter very often, which is when you get a, a new product that you're supposed to review, uh, I mean, it takes a while before you can review it because you have to use it yeah. first. You have to get used to yeah. how it works, how it feels, how it, how it handles, how it ages. So what's the, the proper thing to do? Should you take the product pictures right after you get it when the object is still in pristine condition, or should you take them after you've been using it for a couple months and it starts showing some wear and tear here and there, you know? And that's a very hard question to answer. And for example, with the the next product review that I'm going to write, which is the the leather Brixton bag from Ona, I, I consciously chose to not take the pictures when the bag was new because I think for a leather bag, it's one of the most interesting aspects of it is how well, how gracefully it ages so to be able to show that in the review i think was was more valuable than to show just the state of the of the bag right out of the box but that may not be the same for every product so i'm kind of curious 
as to how you guys choose when when faced with similar situations josh um i think any technological device if i think of like an ipad or an iphone or anything like that like i think you're talking about like the ethos or like the reason for a product so like a leather bag it's meant to age a pro, you know in a certain manner like a little apple tv cube if you were to review an apple tv and shoot photos of it um you know it's not going to be thrown around against a brick wall unless you're really really angry at siri or something like that like so <laughs> which uh, has been known to happen I, i can't get siri to work for the life of me right now but <laughs> another story for another day um so Yeah, I would say like that one, if you're going to shoot photos straight out of the box, um, no problem. Same thing for an iPad. In fact, I would be disappointed if if I had a, sh a photo of an iPhone with a scratch on it uh, for my reviews. But that's also because I'm part of the, uh, you know, I, I jump into the hipster trendy, you know, wherever I'm trying to stylize these photos a lot more than I'm trying to show like how it's used in a daily basis a lot of the time. I don't know how to explain it. At the end of the day, I think it depends on the product, right? Um, right. And the purpose of the product. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm on both sides of that fence. It seems more sensible. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just on the one side of it. And I, I've not given it too much conscious thought until you know I was asked this question. But um, almost every review that I can actually pretty much every review that I can think of, I shot the product um, shortly before publishing or, you know, like in the last week before. Um, because to me, almost any kind of product, um, like I can, I can take photos of um, an iPad or something like that straight out of the box and then it will look perfect and that's fine. But I kind of, um, for me, I don't know yet what I want to portray with those images until I've spent some time with the thing, right? So it's, it's entirely separate from the, um, the intended aesthetic and the, what, what Josh was talking about, um, you know, like where a bag you expect it to look a little more weathered versus a phone entirely separate from that is for my, for my photography, I like to, take product photos that reflect what I'm actually talking about in the review. So if I start taking the images before I've had a chance to formulate an opinion, they might end up feeling a little disconnected from what I will actually discuss later because I was taking the images without having an opinion formed. Whereas if I first spend the actual review time using the thing, blah, 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 for however long I have it, and then take the images, I'm taking images for specific illustration purposes in the review, which I find makes them um, fit in a little better. And yes, it means that sometimes there's going to be more wear visible on them, but I also don't mind that as much. Right. I, you know, whenever I edit these reviews for tools and toys or my own or whatever, I always find that um, you're exactly right, Marius. There's the words and then there's the photos and the photos can often be their own review and the words can be their own review and they can actually send the reader or the viewer, if you will, down two completely different paths if they're not aligned. Yep. You're, you're 100% correct. Um, I also try to, personally, I try to take advantage of that and I actually, sometimes I try to literally do that is, I, you know, if there's a viewer who just wants to skim through a review, well, I want to make sure that the photos um, tell one story and I want to make sure that the words match up. Um, but I want to make sure that the same message is delivered no matter what your intended purpose of, you know, visiting that review is. But, um, that goes for any kind of photography. I think like 
you know, you could easily shoot something for a journalistic purpose and lead someone down the wrong path if your photos don't match your your words. Um, so I don't think it's just product photography. Not that you made that argument, but just to add on to that. Yeah, no, it's a good point, though. Yeah, 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 definitely. All right, so let's talk a little bit about where we do these edits. So you know, we've we've covered pretty well the editing process and what our individual priorities are when we're modifying an image. But of course, this takes place in some piece of software. And um, I, I get the feeling that for most people, that piece of software is Lightroom, but um, there are alternatives out there. So um, we, we should talk a little bit about a few of them. Um, guys, are you are you Lightroom users as well? Yep, totally, 100%. Okay, here's a more important question then. Did you used to be Aperture users? Nope. Yes, sort of, on my end. I used it to store photos. I really liked how it stored photos, um, like cataloged and categorized them. Right. Um, but I, I think I always used Lightroom for actual editing. Interesting, right? Because I think there there's two different kinds of app, which is photo editing apps, you know, in the strict sense, which is you know an app where you open a picture, edit it, and you're done with it. And then there are these catalog centric apps like uh, like Lightroom, like Photos, the new Photos app from Apple, like the, the old iPhoto used to be. These apps are more oriented to towards having a, a big collection of pictures and being able to uh, show them all in context and, and helping you find one picture out of uh, you know thousands of them, like the proverbial uh, needle in a haystack, so to speak. So those are two very different kinds of app, uh, and yeah, I think um, photo editing apps by definition are. Uh, more oriented towards more advanced users, perhaps, whereas these catalog-centric centric apps are more accessible. Uh, you, you get more value out of them, you know, immediately once you import all of your pictures into them. Yeah, and I think that organizational uh, organizational element is huge, especially for the kinds of people who take a lot of shots and want to be able to quickly and easily refer back to them at some point in time. And I think that that's where, um, I mean, we were talking about this briefly, uh, or not so briefly, in the mobile episode where we mentioned Google Photos and, and things like that, where um, there are certain companies that are trying to use machine learning to make the process of keeping your photos organized, uh, you know, more straightforward. Um, and on the desktop, I don't think that that exists in the same shape just yet. Because if you're talking about something like Lightroom, yes, it's a very um, catalog oriented app, but it also doesn't have, it's not particularly smart about it. It gives you a right. lot of tools to organize things the way that you want, um, but it, it's not able to, you know, identify elements in your images when you search, if you haven't already um, keyworded those photos or, or put them into a certain album or things like that. So there's, I think there's a bit of a divide there, um, which is fine because it makes sense for mobile that you'd want to optimize for uh, speedy, easy searches versus the desktop where chances are um, you're more willing to, to put in the work to organize your catalog or you just prefer to organize it the way that you want to instead of the way that some piece of software um, thinks you should. How about you, Marius? What do you use? I, I use Lightroom as well. Um, I, I did switch from Aperture though. That's why I was asking you guys. Cause I found, um, I think I started like Aperture was my first serious photo, um, editing and organizing software. And I used it, um, pretty much until it was discontinued. And I had a kind of rocky transition to Lightroom because I 
don't really like the interface. Um, initially, I like really didn't enjoy the interface. Now I just sort of casually dislike it, um, but I'm used to it. Um, I, I just think I think Aperture was a, a lot nicer to work in. Um, but I mean, I've I've gotten used to it, and and Lightroom is very powerful. Long live Aperture. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's just. <laughs> I miss it. Yeah, I think the general consensus seems to be that Lightroom is an acquired taste. Yeah. yeah, and once you acquire it, it's fine. I mean, it's very powerful software. I think it it gets uh, it's underrated a little bit because people, you know, say, well, Photoshop is better. It's you know, it's an unfair comparison because the two of them um, do complement each other very well. Um, but yeah, I'm most of my most of my cataloging and most of my edits are just happening right in Lightroom, especially now that there's a, the very very good mobile companion app. Uh, it's just a very good workflow for me. Right, but I think there's a very clear divide between the the type of user that Lightroom and Photoshop are aimed at, and which is clearly a more uh, advanced user, more professional user um, than than the rest of some of these apps you know what i mean because lightroom and photoshop are expensive yeah, i mean regardless of whether you buy them you know the standalone versions or you subscribe to the creative cloud subscription based model that they have it's you're still paying a lot of money for the app so that it just um sort of eliminates those apps as an option for casual users I think. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And so so we might have a very skewed perspective on this because we it's easy for us because we're all Lightroom users and Photoshop users. It's easy for us to assume that Lightroom and Photoshop are just a status quo, but I think many many people out there just uh, are perfectly happy with more casual apps like Pixelmator for example, which is an excellent photo editing app, like really really good. And, and and I've read reviews and they uh, everybody seems to love it. I've used it myself and I love it too. And for somebody who doesn't need to get into super advanced uh, editing tools, I think that's that it could be all they need perfectly. And and like Pixelmator, there are other similarly excellent apps like Affinity Photo and 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 others. And those are just as good or better for for some users than Lightroom and Photoshop. And some, you know what I mean? The picture kind of gets a little blurry here. In all honesty, I think I could get by 95% of what I do in Photos app or Photos.app, like just the photos, the standard one that comes with a, a Mac computer. So I agree for sure. Um, I, isn't Pixelmator more of like a photo manipulation tool? It sort of leans more towards that. I think it's like, I've never been able to figure out how to use it. So I'm not, I don't even, I've never even tried it. I tried it once and that was it. It's a great app, but it is more of a, of a like alternative to Photoshop than to Lightroom. Okay. Right, right, right. And right. that's the same with affinity. Like Alvaro was mentioning earlier that there's a, a gap between apps that are focused on cataloging versus apps that are just focused on editing one image at a time. And both Pixelmator and affinity are, are definitely in the latter category. Uh, but that being said, I, I've been very interested because lately we've seen, um, quite a number of these kinds of apps emerge as a um, largely as an answer to Photoshop going to a subscription model, I think, because before it was something that, you know, you could you could look at the high price of Photoshop and and still kind of think of it as reasonable. 
Um, but for whatever reason, when they switched to a, um, subscription model, there was a lot of pushback, of course, and a lot of companies decided to take it upon themselves to provide alternatives to Photoshop that were still, you know, you know, pay once and have it forever kind of pricing, um, but also were just more affordable in general. And that's where Pixelmator emerged. That's where uh, Affinity Photo emerges. Um, what's interesting to me is that they've actually managed to either match or in some cases even exceed the, uh, the, the quality of the tools of something like Photoshop. They might not have the same breadth of tools available, oh, yeah. um, but the combined user experience of working in Affinity Photo is, uh, is much better than Photoshop on the Mac in a lot of cases, uh, which is remarkable, especially when you think of one being the fraction uh, of the price of the other one. Right, and part of that comes from the fact that they don't have to conform to all the legacy uh, you know, underpinnings of Photoshop. That's an app that's been in development for like more than 10, 15 years. Yeah. And, and, and with that comes a lot of craft and a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, inefficiencies, many inefficiencies. And uh, the fact that it's also a cross-platform app because the same engine runs on the Mac and on Windows, that also kind of makes it a little bit more difficult, more 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 taxing on your machine, yep. perhaps, is the, is the right way to say it. Whereas these other apps, which are newer and were designed specifically for the Mac platform, they are free from all that. They can just get the most out of the the OS ten architecture, and they are just much better uh, tuned for performance with current machines. And that's something you definitely feel when using them. I would never ever uh, argue with you on that point. But on the flip side, ten to fifteen years of cross platform development for Photoshop means that there's guides galore online that you can just quickly Google, find, and implement. Whereas like learning how to use Affinity Photo versus learning how to use Photoshop, like there's a different learning curve there um, thanks to many years of development, right? So Photoshop has a very big, wide audience, right? And I, I think that's a benefit to Photoshop and a you know, detriment to Affinity or Pixelmator. But I do get where, you're, 100%, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, that's a good point because there's, there's a lot to be said for the value of, you know, just basically endless tutorials and endless resources helping anyone who wants to pick up Photoshop um, versus something new. And honestly, I think that especially in the case of Affinity and Pixelmator, they've done a very good job of making a lot of tutorial videos, a lot of um, resources to try and help people bridge that gap. But ultimately, yeah, they're, they're playing catch up on that front um, and there's only so much they can do. Uh, but it's frustrating because, again, in a lot of cases, their their experience is better. Like just using their app is better. But again, like you say, you have to actually take the time to learn it. And that learning curve can feel steeper because you're not as um, overwhelmed by by learning resources. So it's it's difficult to uh, to straddle that line. And I think it makes it very difficult for these products to uh, to compete. But on the other hand, again, uh, eventually, I think they will they will. Um, become more competitive as people try them out and understand that a lot of the skills that they learned in Photoshop, for instance, are directly uh, transferable to Affinity Photo. And in, in right. the case of Affinity, they also have, of course, full support for the Photoshop uh, document format. So you don't even have to worry about that. It's, uh, you know, there's there's pros and cons on both ends. Um, it's kind of similar to the, the, the situation with Word and 
and pages, for example. Right. Like, you know, the, the office uh, productivity suite and the iWorks uh, productivity suite. And that's just something that the, the, when you have a huge installed base, you have a, an inherent advantage that comes from that. But if you provide uh, good enough support and learning materials, you can definitely get get a, get around that and f- at least get it to a point where people using your software don't feel like they're missing out on something, you know? Right. And that's really all that matters. If you can find the answer you're looking for, it doesn't matter to you if there's 5, 10, or 20 available answers in Google search. You just want the one. Right. Yeah. And I think this is where this is where your workflow and your like your individual preferences for app interfaces also come into play. Um, and I know, for example, uh, one of the tools that's very frequently compared to Lightroom is Capture One, right? Um, which is made by Phase One, the company that's known for their medium format uh, bodies. And Capture One, from the prevailing opinion, is that um, in almost every sense it is better than Lightroom in terms of sheer image processing. Um, But it does have its own interface quirks and its own way of doing things. And again, if you're used to Lightroom or you just find Lightroom more intuitive, then you have to look at the two and say, okay, are the the potential gains in image fidelity or just in editing workflow um, worth my struggle in getting used to an interface that I don't really enjoy. Right. One thing I've heard or one workflow that I've read some people use is that they use Capture One to sort of do the raw conversion. Yeah. Because that's where Capture One really excels is it yeah. capturing all the information from the raw file and exporting a JPEG version of that. And you can do some sort of basic the kind of global tweaks that we we were talking about earlier, like fixing the white balance, the the tone curve, the highlights, the shadows. And once you get a basic, uh, you know, the, the the basic way that you want the picture to look, you can export it to JPEG and then use a second photo editing app to do the final tweaks. If you if there's another one that you prefer for that kind of that kind of workflow. Yeah, to me it, that doesn't make. It, to me, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense to do that because Capture One has all the tools that a Lightroom would have. So if you're going to work in one environment, then just stay there. Essentially, is my is my feeling. But yeah, it's, I, that's that's yeah. what I would do too. Yeah, yeah, I think I think where where um, that workflow comes into play is with the um, with the filter apps that we're also starting to see more of these days. And that's something where, again, it's, it's an app designed for you to import one photo at a time or sometimes batches, but usually it's one photo at a time and apply a filter to it. And it's, it doesn't tend to give you a lot of actual editing tools. It's just designed to be like a, like a Visco or an Instagram where you're choosing your filter, you're adjusting the intensity and Technically, it's happening after you've already processed. Generally, it's happening after you've already done the basic processing. So in that case, um, it would be exactly the workflow that you described, Alvaro, um, where you're doing the actual raw conversion and basic image edits in Lightroom or in Capture One or whatever it is. And then you're pulling it into this other app just to do that final layer of, of stylistic polish, essentially. And I've, I've done that. I was actually uh, exploring an app called uh, Prime, which uh, came out recently for the Mac. I think they've had an iPhone app for a while, which I don't use, but um, the Mac version is, is really quite a sleek app. It's very, um, it feels like a Mac native app. And they've got an interesting system where they collaborate with various photographers to create themed filters. 
and then you can adjust the intensity of those filters and they've got like a hundred or 200 of them or something like that. And they're, they're generally quite nice looking and you can adjust the, um, intensity of them with a slider. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun way to explore a bunch of different stylistic approaches to an image. And I think there's a lot of value just in that, in the ability to explore, because it's something that's not necessarily as straightforward to do in an image editing program. Um, so having an app that's dedicated to that is, is pretty cool. Okay, so we've talked about, uh, we've touched uh, on this uh, subtly before, and it's what about the the different business models that are associated with photo editing and the way you distribute your pictures to clients and the way you use your tools, right? On one hand, there's, there's um, as far as the software goes, you have... Uh, some apps like Lightroom and Photoshop, there are basically you're renting your software. You pay nine ninety nine, I think it's every month, and you get uh, to use both apps. And then there are other apps like Pixelmator or Affinity Photo, where you just pay a certain amount and you own the software. And those are very different models. And for me personally, I see the value in both because if I were uh, specially concerned with long lasting with having long lasting access to my pictures and the ability to come back to them and alter the edits you know 10 years from now i don't know that i would feel comfortable with renting my software because if you get tired of that app and decide to move over to a different one then you lose access to all of your files you don't have access to the editing app and you can't touch those files anymore unless you're lucky enough that your new app is somehow compatible with the same file format as is the case with both Affinity Photo and Pixelmator. These two apps can use and can open and work with Photoshop files. So in this particular case, you would be fine, but there's not a guarantee that that's going to continue uh, you know, in the long run. So bottom point for me personally is that owning your software gives you that security that no matter what happens, at least the pictures you already own and the, the, the pictures you've already shot, you're going to have continued support for those. And um, yeah, I, I'm okay also with the renting model because that's the common practice these days. But I don't know that I like it. I really don't know that I like it. If I could choose... It's certainly more expensive. Yeah, definitely more expensive because even if you're just paying for one year, you're, expend, you're, you're spending like twice what any of these other apps uh, you know, cost. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very tricky question. And, um, well, like I said, personally, I fall on the side of owning my software. I, I always have, and I think I always will, but I'm curious as to what, what, what do you guys think about this? I, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to just jump on board and say that I agree about the support part, because if you buy an app and let's say that it's just not a successful app, like that doesn't lend itself to a long term to long term support, whereas renting it, um, in all likelihood, because it's more expensive, like leads to a longer term support. Like if I look at Adobe and their Creative Cloud subscription versus owning Pixelmator, for instance, like Adobe, I guess there's a history we're talking about here, right? Like we know Adobe is going to be around for a long time, so any of your work that you do in those apps. Um, well, we also knew that Aperture was going to be around, and look how that turned out. Well, th but that's my argument, is that Aperture 
is gone now and you could buy that whereas adobe like you're renting it and yeah it's more expensive but it's going to be around and it's going to be around for a long time like i think now because it's the only option right but worst case scenario you you could always keep a backup of aperture and and you're always going to have a way to go back to that app and install it and and use it with your files on that front i think i'd agree not that you can't back up adobe's lightroom catalogs for instance right but but if you if you stop paying you you don't you can't use the app anymore so unless you keep paying you 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 can't go back to those pictures because you don't have access to the app itself fair, fair enough fair enough well, but that's that's not accurate in the case of Lightroom because you don't need Lightroom to access the photos. Like the Light, Lightroom just accesses the photos from wherever you put them. The only thing you lose access to is their organizational and editing tools, but you don't lose access to the photos in any sense. They remain in their original formats. No, so from right. that perspective, you get the raw files, but you lose all the edits that you've done. Not if you've exported them. But then how can you go back to them and modify them if you exported them in a Lightroom proprietary format? No, but what I'm saying is if you have Lightroom and it's got the raw files and you've made edits to them and then you've exported those photos, then you do have access to your edited version. And in a lot of cases, um, because you've got the actual raw file, you can go back and re-edit however you see fit in a different app. I mean, I understand that you're... I see what you're saying in terms of it not like you can't literally open the catalog and see the modifications that were made to the raw file the same way you could. But I'm just you, you said you lose access to the files, which is not really the case, at least for Lightroom, because it's not putting the files in some sort of monolith like uh, like Aperture used to where it's, you know, it's hiding them in its own library file. Right. But Lightroom, the way I the way I use it, at least it doesn't touch my raw files. It just I, I would still have my raw files, but the rest of the edits are hidden away in the Lightroom catalog, right? Right. I mean, unless you unless you choose to um, do sidecar files, in which case those will actually contain the edits and can be opened in another app and all of the edits can be applied to the raw file the way they were in, in Lightroom. Right. Anyway, the, I, I think that philosophically I agree with you, um, but in practical terms, I look at it also from the developer perspective because if I'm paying a low fee once for an app... Um, that's more difficult for a developer to continue working on, right? Uh, and, and that's where the rental model obviously came into play because developers wanted an ongoing revenue stream which would allow them to actually keep working on these apps. Right. Um, and from that perspective, if you look at the likelihood of, you know, um, like Pixelmator disappearing versus Lightroom disappearing, to me, Pixelmator is at more risk of vanishing at some point. Totally. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, and it's a bad example here because, of course, Adobe is a massive company. But assuming that they were the same size, um, it would be Pixelmator that I would be more, be more worried about. And yes, I, you know, I have the security, quote unquote, of owning the software, so it will never stop working. Uh, but if it stops being designed or developed then that kind of is the same thing right and it agreed so yeah. so i'm i'm happy to support developers with rental models and i don't i think that when we're talking about the digital world everything is fragile uh, i think there's a different problem there i mean it's the way the whole app store economics has boiled down and, and that's a completely separate matter as far as i'm concerned i mean i'm i would be okay with paying for updates for example and that's something you can't do on the app store which is ridiculous, if you ask me. Well, yeah, that's that's a Mac problem. <laughs> yeah. So that's a different. It's a, it's a separate problem entirely. I mean, 
they could have that recurring revenue stream if they charge for the updates. But Pixelmator chose not to do that when they committed to being App Store only. So that's just the way it works, unfortunately. I mean, the App Store does give you access to a much bigger market, potentially. So they they must have, uh, you know, run the numbers and figured out that it was worth it. But But they could... Nothing stopping them from going independent and pulling out of the app store and selling directly to consumers and charging for the updates. So that's perfectly valid. They could do that. And I would be completely happy with that. I mean, and it's something that we actually saw Sketch do recently, not in a photo context, but in a in a d- design perspective, similar app, you know, was Mac App Store and they pulled it out because they wanted to be able to uh, to do that kind of thing. Right. Um, but I guess my my thinking is more that because every app will eventually go away, um, you know, everything will be replaced. I'm more concerned that I'm storing and uh, um, I, I guess working with files in formats that are open, right? So that's why I don't save things as Photoshop documents. I always just save the exported right. thing. I will keep the Photoshop document, but I don't actually. That's not my. Uh, canonical reference, if you will, like it's it's always the original file that I know I can open in whatever app I want. And to me, that's more important than worrying about rental versus paying once, because t- to me, like both of them are, are fragile systems that, you know, one might be less so than another one right. in a certain circumstance or whatever. But it's ultimately it's if you if you're concerned about the longevity of your files, um, that has more to do with the files themselves and and how you store them and how you back them up, versus um, what app you're using to to edit them. And of course, bottom line, if you're concerned about the longevity of your files, you should be shooting film. Right. Oh, SmackDown mic drop. He's <laughs> <laughs> not wrong. No, he's not wrong. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's my my thinking on the whole like renting versus owning thing. And uh, again, f- from my perspective, I'm happy to to rent certain software and I do, I mean, I rent the whole Adobe suite. Um, and value wise, I mean, it, it works out fine for me. I, I like, um, I like the way that, um, that they've set it up. And I like the fact that by working within the Adobe ecosystem, I have, um, access to the intense interoperability, um, which is something that none of these other apps for now can can boast um, because they don't have like an ecosystem of apps that can pass files back and forth. Um, and granted, for photographers, that's really not that much of a like it's rare that you have needs that go beyond like start in Lightroom, finish in Photoshop and then come back. Right. Um, but if you're working in context where your images are being integrated into video or into After Effects work, then the ability to pass them around between these apps seamlessly um, is is pretty cool. And for now, that's something that only Adobe is able to provide. So um, I, I understand both sides of the argument. It's, I think for me, it's just a matter of uh, like the, the whole thing about your files going away or not having access. That's just not an argument that I find particularly compelling. Okay, fair enough. Uh, what about RAW versus JPEG when you... When it's time to deliver your files to your client, if this is a client job, uh, what do you guys think is the right thing to do? Are you comfortable with giving your raw files away? Or do you have a policy as, you know, I only give JPEGs? I don't think I would ever give a raw file away, but if I sold it, then 100% I would give it to them. Right. How about you, Marius? 
I 100% will never provide a client with a raw file. Why not? Paid or not, it's not. They paid for it. It's like it's like a product. No, they paid. They paid for the product. The product is not the raw file. The product is the JPEG. You see, I completely agree with Marius on this one. Yeah, I, I knew I would be the devil's advocate on this one, but like I just don't see the value in like. So you keep the raw file, but whoop de do. Let me let me give you an example. Let me give you an example, Josh. Let's say that I'm hired to do a shoot for a big company, high profile company. I'm super excited, but they want the raw files. So I'm going to say, all right, you know what? I'll charge you a little extra. Have the raw files. It's all good. Then they take the raw files and they edit those photos in a way that is totally not reflective of my style, of my aesthetic sensibilities or anything. They post them on their website, which gets millions and millions of views. And suddenly I'm getting a ton of phone calls from people expecting that style of photography, which is not what I do, not what I'm good at and not what I want to be working on. Right. So I would say like, you got to attach a license to that. And therefore, like it's they're going to stay within the confines of a contract. Right. But if they're staying within the con, if they're staying within the confines of a contract, then why do they need the raw files? Exactly. And also the, 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 the bigger point is that you, Marius, are looking at it, you know, on the bright side, you're saying many people are going to contact me demanding work that is more like this. But what if it's the other way around? What if they hate it? And you lose potential clients because of that, right? Yeah, and that's the or, or why or or what if uh, we run into, or you could potentially run into an issue, uh, an ethical issue, like we were mentioning before. What if you take a picture of a model and they decide to edit it and and change the body shape of the model in a way that many people find offensive, and then the rest of the world is going to assume that you did that. So that's not cool at all. I, I couldn't like I just I, I agree with that um, but I, I think that there's like a bigger that's kind of like a short-sighted thing like then you, you have to choose your client you have to choose your customer as well like it's not like you're just gonna do work for everybody there has to be a, like a mutual trust there if there's not the mutual trust then just don't do anything period um, it, obviously this has never burned me before and maybe that's the case with you guys so I'm maybe naive in it but um, it's not like when you know when I don't know, like you buy an iPhone, it's not like Apple keeps part of the phone. <laughs> it, it gives you the phone. Okay, but that's not that's not a fair analogy. Here's here's the way to look at it. Uh, it's not perfectly fair, but it's, it's still like a product. Well, no, no, no. Okay, l l look at it a different way. It's, we'll keep within the same visual realm. When you buy a movie, do you expect to find the Final Cut project file on the Blu-ray? <laughs> that's a good one. Perhaps not. It is a good one, um, but I'm not buying. I'm not asking for it. I'm not. It's not part of a contract. Like I just paid for part of it. You marked up in order to give the raw files. Like you, you can make a decision. I just the problem to me is a lot simpler than that. I just would feel like I'm giving the client an unfinished product because to me the raw file is unfinished. But you're not going to give the raw pro file with the, without the JPEG. Unless they ask for it. I think, I think this is where, from my perspective, I think I ask myself the question, why do they want the raw file? What is it about the raw file that, they, that makes them think they need it? Right. 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 That's that's the question that I need to answer, because if it's a if it's a matter of style, then they should, you know, like it, maybe I'm not the right photographer to be doing this work if they like, you know, they want to hire me, but they don't like my style. So they want to re-edit them. Then I'm still the wrong photographer for the job. If it's a different thing, if it's for like archival purposes or something like they could get the TIFF file, I'm happy to give them an, you know, an uncompressed TIFF file, but I'm not going to give them a raw file. And, and that's the, um, 
uh, that's where I draw the line. And I think you can, you can draw it in, in various places depending on your perspective. But again, from, from my perspective, if you're hiring me to do photography, it's because you're hiring me. Like it's, I'm not just a random machine that, that serves raw files, right? It's, it's the specific product that I'm selling to you is the final product, right? The, the photograph as executed through my workflow and according to my vision of the project right but there's a flip side to that what if they specifically hire you you know stating that they only want the pictures and they have their own in-house editor that's going to you know process them and of course you can make some sort of arrangement that it's not going to be attached to your name because you you're going to be compensated with money and then they're going to do with the pictures whatever they want would you be open to something like that Sure. But I mean, that's, that's an edge case, right? That's a specific scenario where, uh, something like that might, might fit in, but I'm, I'm making a general statement about, you know, typical client work right, right. where you're hired to take photos and you're delivering a blah, blah. Like, of course there are some scenarios where I could consider it and then it's fine. You find a way to make it work. Um, okay. But again, that's why I'm saying like, I, w- I want to ask the question of why do you want the raw files to begin with? Because chances are that will reveal where the problem lies. And, and, Thus far, um, this has just been my policy, and I, I, I think it's a good one in the sense that I feel comfortable that whatever work I'm delivering to clients is reflective of my actual work, right? I mean, it's they're they're getting something that I'm I'm happy for them to put out on the internet. Right. And the the downside, of course, is that clients will edit them anyway, right? I mean, that's the whole other part of this is inevitably, if you get, especially for something like portraiture, you know, you'll take a photo, you'll edit it. It'll look just the way you want it to. You'll give it to the client. And three days later, something turns up on Facebook that vaguely resembles the image you gave them, but has been, (laughs) you know, horribly mangled by some Instagram. I hear you. I hear you. And so that's, that's inevitable. And I would rather at least limit the damage that they can do by providing them with a JPEG versus a RAW file. Um, I blame Instagram. I mean, I don't blame anyone. I think it's a normal thing to want to participate <laughs> in the creative process a little bit. And I No, but literally, I have had this happen to me. Like, I give a client a picture, like, you know, a properly edited picture, and then they just ran it to an Instagram filter, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing here. It sucks. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I'm more or less playing a little bit of devil's advocate because I do get the thought. Like, I get it. Um, But at the same time, I don't know. There's still like, if that customer is parting with money for your work and you're not willing to give them what they're looking for, then um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do you at least like sympathize at all? Like even like an inkling with that thought? I do, I do, but I think that comes from uh, it's a, it's a bit of an irrational, uh, you know, request that, that to ask for the raw files. Uh, Marius made a great point: is it, why are you asking for the raw files? I mean, right, uh, fair enough. The one time where it happened with me, it, for instance, um, they needed to add on something um, with their own editors because it was a big ad campaign. Right. I didn't know how to do it. So I gave them the raw thinking that like it would save me the time of having to learn how to do that and they could do a better job than I could. So off we go. Maybe it's just because my, and like I said, my experience is pretty naive. Like Marius works in a creative design agency. Like I don't have that kind of experience. So 
perhaps I'm a little bit short-sighted on my end. Well, I don't think so. I, th- I think it's just a matter of, of again, e- each person is going to feel a little bit differently about what exactly they're offering to the client. And if it's if your definition of um, of work product includes raw files, then yeah, absolutely. If they're paying for it and you feel comfortable giving them away, then by all means. But for me that's not my definition of of work product. Like if I'm being hired for photography, it's for the final thing, which from my perspective is the, the flattened file with my particular edits applied. And again, I'm happy to provide a TIFF file if the, if the problem is one of, um, compression, right? They, they want a lossless image, like in the case that you just mentioned, where they, they're working on an ad campaign and this image is being integrated, like there's there's text being overlaid or something like that. They mm-hmm. don't need a raw file for that. They just need an uncompressed file. So they get a TIFF and everybody's happy. Um, but that's, again, that's just my um, outlook on it. I'm, here's, I'm really going to like give myself a, I'm going to punch myself here, but I don't even know what a TIFF is. Okay, so a TIFF file is basically... <laughs> this is where you're rolling your eyes and going, are you serious? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not rolling my eyes because it's not a particularly common format in like day-to-day... Like I've seen it in the export thing, like in the export option of the module, but I've never like, I had no idea what it was, so... Yeah, it's it's basically an image format that is uh, can be uncompressed. So whereas a JPEG is, you know, a lossy file, a TIFF can basically be the like maximum quality version of a JPEG with no compression whatsoever. Exactly. It's like the flattened raw file, but without the lossy compression. Yeah. So it is still an image format, right? Because a raw is technically not an image. It's just a, a data container. A TIFF format is an image file. It's just not a compressed one. Okay. Maybe my answer would change now if I knew if I had known this before. Yeah. <laughs> you anyway. can actually compress TIFF files as well. For me, I look at them as as like the archival um, version of a photo. So it's yeah, right, that's right. that's about as as high quality as I'm willing to provide. But I'm always willing to provide. So for me, it's like the default for a client is they get maximum quality JPEGs. But if they say, hey, can I get something uncompressed? I say, absolutely, here are the TIFF files, no extra charge, no nothing, that's just part of it. I just don't offer them right off the bat because most people look at TIFF files and they have no idea what I'm sending them. So it's just... Right. Well, it was good to finally have a fight with you guys. You know, (laughs) digital punch to digital punch. We had to disagree on something. (laughs) Finally. Yeah. And it's the 10th episode, right? So it's like, it's a time for new beginnings. Right. Now we start punching (laughs) each other. (laughs) 